children of all ages, Logic Code Radio presents the greatest podcast in the world, the market at Samuel Plan, the devil's advocate Shinobi, the lunatic king Maverick, and single syllable mother, the right side of the pond. And of course, if you're not down with that, we got two words for you. Chip shop side of the pond. Uh, indeed, we've had some technical difficulties tonight, uh, dear listeners, so do bear with us. Um, but we are back to look at the second part of our hipster Mount Rushmore. So last week we broke down uh, four matches, two each, um, which we would say uh, formed a kind of you know alternative Mount Rushmore, a Mount Rushmore of matches, which are maybe less talked about than the obvious ones we did two weeks ago, but nevertheless are you know absolutely deserving of that honour um so we're going to do the seconds two each so to remind everyone uh last week we did um uh, i had x-pack not x-pack sorry one two three kids <laughs> versus uh versus bret hart uh from raw in 1994 um and also i had what did i also have Oh, uh, Dolph Ziggler versus <laughs> Alberto Del Rio uh, from Payback 2013, the famous concussion match. And uh, Plan had Montreal, um, the uh, the famous screw job, and also Royal Rumble 1992. Yes. 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 So on to this week, Plan. Uh, so what's your third pick? So both of my picks this week have been kind of a, a bit of a, a toss-up between... Like, there's been a couple... Um, in each instance that I've that I've felt um, kind of pulled towards, uh, I had considered Bulldog and Brett at SummerSlam 1992 as a match that kind of proved that that kind of match can headline a major pay per view. But ultimately, I decided to go for the Money in the Bank, the first Money in the Bank ladder match from WrestleMania 21 because of a number of reasons. First of all, I think it's still the best version of that match that we've seen um, because it's it's got a, a balance to it that I don't think has been... I mean, it's, other versions have come close on a few occasions, but I think the first one still still is the... You know, it, it has that balance between action, but it's got a bit of a story that kind of develops as the match progresses it's got a, a winner that they clearly had some kind of design for it's got uh, a, a great variety of different styles uh, and different uh, characters as well different character backgrounds in there it platforms shelton benjamin it gives chris benoit a good follow-up from his main event the preceding year it obviously results in a big push for edge it fits in the vets like Jericho and Kane in a feature match. Uh, and unlike later versions, <clears throat> especially sort of towards the end of its tenure on WrestleMania cards, it doesn't feel the action itself, the content doesn't feel stupid or gratuitous. It never sacrifices intelligence for the sake of a stunt. And it does have some eye popping stunts in it. Uh, besides that, it's the first time we'd see the the trick where there's a, a one ladder lent diagonally against another one to in this case like Shelton Benjamin to go charging up it so you get some original content there as well and it rounds the card out nicely it complements the rest of the card it doesn't have a sense of we need something for all these guys to do you know this was an age before they felt a pressing need to get everybody who's anybody on the WrestleMania card. Um, so everybody who's in the match feels like they're in there for a, a good reason that they're warranted in their inclusion. Uh, and finally, it's it's a match that the success of has come to define pretty much the preeminent way WWE have tried to push new stars ever since it happened. Money in the Bank was such a success the first time around that they've since tried it and tried it and they've stuck to it. Uh, it's arguably uh, superseded King of the Ring just in terms of the number of times they've tried to use it to push someone new. And sadly, its history at this stage is littered with more failures than it is with successes. Uh, But, you know, if you you remove the success of this match or you remove this match altogether, then WWE since 2005 looks radically different. And 
in much the same way I was talking about Royal Rumble last week, I think the same applies here. You're talking about a definitive version of a, of a definitive concept at the heart of the way the product has functioned ever since. You know, it now has its own pay-per-view, which is one of the tentpole pay-per-views of the year. And, you know, how many cash-ins and big moments and crowned champions do you get rid of uh, without Money in the Bank? The big one obviously being WrestleMania 31 and how history may have changed there if they hadn't have had that kind of backstop. Oh, God, I've listened no. to the news far too much. Jesus. Um, <laughs> <laughs> kill me now. Um, but that's the point I'm driving at is obviously you remove Money in the Bank. Uh, and and every year in WWE since 2005 feels feels drastically different. Arguably, perhaps for the better or for the worse, that's up for debate, but different nonetheless. And that happens either if this match A never happens, or B if this match fails. And I think I mentioned last week that sometimes, or the week before, sometimes we don't talk enough about how important it was for certain matches in history, not just to have happened, but to have succeeded in popular and, and, and critical ways. And that's before you even delve into the way that it's then in turn informed the way that ladders matches have changed since uh, and how, you know, it further cemented the kind of style and, and feels like a natural evolution of what Edge and Christian, the Hardys and the Dudleys were doing at the back end of Attitude and stuff. So it's got a lot of historical weight to it. It's a great, uh, one of the great WrestleMania undercard matches and its success has informed the product ever since. Yeah, there's no disputing its importance. I think, uh, rather annoyingly, it's it's almost the, the poster child for WWE's habit of finding something that works once and then just endlessly trying to recreate it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when you really think about it, um, you know, Money in the Bank uh, did great things for Edge and great things for Seth Rollins. I don't know if there's that many more that you could really name. Um you know, and, and there'd probably be borderline cases um, in that. And, and it really, as we've talked about before, you know, it lessened the importance of the Royal Rumble as a way of sort of putting guys that you wanted to get into the main event into the main event. So you yeah. then had these two avenues and both of them became quite watered down. We were in a brand split. At one point you had, you know, when they made the pay-per-view, you had two ladder matches, one for each brand, which was you know, gratuitous. And now you have one for women and one for men, which in its own way is, is just as gratuitous. Um, so it is, I think, um, a good example of this age of excess, which, I mean, actually you could go all the way back to 2005 and say, you know, it, it, it was beginning then. Um, and, you know, that you look at the people that are in this match, they were veterans, Shelton Benjamin aside. And, that's one of the reasons why the match is a big success and you know it's it's kind of become one of those cliches really that you know it's this thing for young guys to prove themselves but really when you look through the history of the thing um i mean wasn't rick flair in it the next year and um yeah and then you know like that year when you know everyone protested because cena won it uh or it was like for the belts instead of for the briefcase but but you know, even so, it's it's that sort of um, it's that sort of thing where it was really successful, and they probably should have left it at that, or have made it biannual, maybe, or you know, something like the original How in a Cell matches, which you just pulled out when you felt like it was necessary to do it. Um, but then, you know, taking aside those reservations about what it spawned, the actual original matches is, is a great match to go and rewatch. It's highly rewatchable. As you say, Shelton Benjamin is incredible in it. Benoit holds the whole thing together, you know, and you've got such an array of talent in the ring. Jericho, Kane, uh, it's, it is a, a fantastic match in a, what I think is quite an underrated WrestleMania, actually, in 21. Um, yeah. Yeah, WrestleMania 21 is, is, I think it's let down by, I mean, I've kind of really fallen out of love with the Angle's Michael, Angle Michaels match, actually, but... Um, I think it's it's big letdown is the fact it ends on a bit of a damp squib. Um, the the main event's okay, you know the last match on the card between Batista and Triple H is okay, but it's a bit slow. Uh, and I think it was before Batista had really kind of discovered his his full, uh, you know, tapped into that full potential as an in ring performer. But uh, it's an interesting point you make about watering down the Royal Rumble because of course 2005 was the very last year in which the Royal Rumble winner. Um, uh, well, was was the last year before they started taking liberties with the Royal Rumble, 
when they're actually challenging for a title. Yeah. You know, outside of the the last match on the card, and suddenly, you know, it's it's a big bugbear of mine not to get sidetracked, but it's us. So <laughs> it's a huge bugbear of mine that that over the years, it's gone from the winner of the Royal Rumble receives a world title shot to the winner of the Royal Rumble gets in the main event of WrestleMania, which you know isn't the end game. The end game, if if you weren't getting the title shot, you wouldn't be in the Royal Rumble. Um, so it's kind of bothered me that 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 lexicon has shifted. Uh, and this was probably, as you say, the, the start of that. But even the negative aspects of it just drive home how important a match it is. Because, again, you know, although it's it's perhaps not a reason to shout its success from the rooftops, uh, I, I, you know, those 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 negatives have in their own right informed the way that the product has changed, the company has changed over the the last, what is it now, 15 years um and so again you can't escape it it's a match with a towering towering legacy and yet curiously and perhaps it's because there's now been so many and and they are so regular that that it isn't talked about in the same sort of uh conversations that a match like the 92 royal rumble might be talked about or indeed some of the matches we put on our actual mainstream rushmore uh, are talked about but it it's which is one reason why I've included it, because, you know, it's not one that necessarily comes to the forefront of people's minds. But if it did, I think it would be very, very hard in this day and age to argue against its inclusion. Certainly as multi-man ladder matches go, there's no there's no touching it, really. Well, I mean, even even things like, you know, we've talked a lot about the lost generation, so to speak. Um, but, you know, Money in the Bank was integral to um, the Miz's rise to the top. Uh, Sheamus um, would win it many years uh, later, of course, uh, it was um, they tried it with um, uh, Damien Sandow won it that year. Uh, you know, I mean, Ziggler, of course, got to the world title through Money in the Bank. Del Rio won it. Punk won it twice. And I think what what happened was you the, the more they married themselves to the idea that they have to do it because it's a success. Um, and I've said this before about it the more it became uh, a case of we've got to find someone to win Money in the Bank rather than a candidate necessarily presenting themselves. And unlike in the case of the Royal Rumble, what's happened is it's shown that it's actually a pretty flimsy foundation on which to build someone's main event run because they have this bad habit of of thinking that it's the clever thing to give someone the briefcase, then make them lose for months so that when they cash in, it's a big shock without realizing the, 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 the self-evident, the obvious flaw in that logic. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the 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 fact that you have this entire generation of talent that was unable to make it stick up top primarily. Well, not primarily, but but I think a large reason for being that the number of people who got main event runs got them on the back of weirdly constructed cash ins. Yeah. Um, you know, you're talking about the, the you know, one of the major, if not the foremost issue that WWE have had since the the attitude guys really kind of left their prime around this time around 2005 2006 uh so uh, you know again the legacy of it for either directly or indirectly on a number of levels is is i think unavoidable yeah and i think when you you know when you kind of look at um the rules for a successful you know main event transition the rules are the same whether it's the rumble or money in the bank you know, they have to be hot in the six months or so that precedes it. Yeah. Um, you don't get Austin in, you know, 97 if he hasn't had that red hot sort of uh, run from King of the Ring 96 onwards. You know, you don't get um, you don't get uh, Mick Foley doing what Mick Foley did without his kind of, um, you know, without his kind of constant participation in these kind of big matches um you don't get um i mean i think some, some actually run, some of that actually want to rumble like um uh, like the way well, you know, i know the rock the rock officially won it and they do all that stuff with a big show afterwards but you know and he was already a big star by then i guess but you, you, you kind of have to have a, a good run-up at it really um well, or, batista in 2005 is a yeah example as well of course and, and you know an edge right he, he might not have been at his hottest when he won money in the bank but then they were patient with what they did with him as a character and with that briefcase. And they made sure that when he did cash in, it was in the most impactful way they could possibly 
construct. And as you say, so many of these afterwards have been damp squibs. And that's really what's, you know, what's hurt it. But, you know, there's no taking away from the power of the original. And I think it's like a lesson for WWE to say you didn't have to have Canadian Stampede every year. You know, it was OK to just have it once, right? <laughs> you know, as it fit. Nowadays, if Canadian Stampede happened now, obviously we'd all go out of our minds because what a great match to watch. But but then they would make it a pay-per-view. Yeah, a pay-per-view headlined by a 10-man tag team match every year. Yeah. Team Canada versus Team America or whatever. Oh god, yeah, exactly. So that's 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 the problem with these things. Um, you know, and you can only hope that that one day they'll get a bit more restrained with them. <laughs> we, 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 yeah, we can but hope. Um Okay, so um right, my my choice. So I have gone for um I actually changed my mind from when we were talking in the chat. I've gone for uh, Chris Benoit against Kurt Angle from the Royal Rumble in 2003. Oh, nice. Um, and I chose it for a few different reasons. First of all, I think it represents that kind of pure wrestling match that I think, you know, things on the main roster and NXT today often aspire to or seem to think they're influenced by, but actually have just taken it to this sort of, you know, this very excessive place. But I think, you know, this, the idea the idea that, um, you know, certain performers bring a legitimacy, just like Bret Hart did, you know, just like um, maybe someone like an Arn Anderson did. Like some people just feel like they bring that, that legitimacy to the ring. And uh, obviously Angle and Benoit were, of their generation, the two, the two prime examples of it. Um, secondly, it's now obviously an outstanding match, about as good a, a one-on-one title match or match quality as maybe there's ever been. Um, thirdly, it kind of was something which was a dry run, really, for that thank you title win that Benoit would get the next year. And, you know, fourthly, of course, you can't uh, avoid the elephant in the room in that, you know, no one would put a Benoit match on an official Mount Rushmore because of, you know, because of how his his life ended. Um, so it, it's interesting on, on quite a lot of levels. Um but obviously, Angle and Benoit, as part of that SmackDown 6, were absolutely killing it week after week after week. You know, almost too many amazing TV matches to count. Um, brilliant offerings on pay-per-view, whether as part of tag teams or wrestling for world titles or wrestling for mid-card titles. You know, they were just on a run of form, which I think is maybe unprecedented, really. And then they get this opportunity to have a match at a big four pay-per-view in the famous test challenger spot, um, which is a rumble tradition, uh, of course, that we love. And they absolutely knocked it out of the park to the point where uh, Benoit, as the losing um, challenger, uh, was at, you know given a standing ovation by the crowd and kind of sent off um, into, the, uh, into the evening with the crowd's applause ringing. And, uh, you know, that, that sort of stuff was just incredible really to experience um so it's a great match i wouldn't say it's a forgotten match but because of the obvious circumstances maybe a match that people don't talk about as much as they used to yeah it's it's uh, it is phenomenally good and so smooth and i mean one thing that that <laughs> that sticks out in my mind thinking about it now is the um there's that moment in the match where uh, I don't know if you remember it. I th- I don't know which one of them does it to the other, but one of them nails like a DDT on the other on the on the edge of the ring, um, and uh, you know it's like a, a huge huge moment. The, the announcers lose their minds. The crowd pops. It's like now you see that every week. You see that on every Raw. You see it on every SmackDown. It's done to death. And so I think what in a weird way, and that's just one small example of. Um, how I think in a weird way it's it's representative of how wrestling seems to have become too self-aware, which is a theme that's actually going to feed into my second pick in a minute. But um, I think this is a match that certainly in WWE, certainly in NXT, this is the kind of wrestling match that I think the most critically acclaimed matches of today think they look like. Yes, that's what I was thinking too, yeah. yeah. Um, 
uh, and you know think that they're they're this smart and they aren't. Um, and and without wanting to sound critical or abrasive to other fans, I think that that feeds into fan mindset a lot these days as well. I think a lot of people point to matches these days and say they're as smart as this one, and they're not. Um, and but the 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 fascinating thing for me is considering whether or not Benoit would have got that world title run if it wasn't for the success of this match and the reaction that he gets in this match. Uh, and then when you start to stagger that, how if Benoit and Eddie hadn't got those title runs in 2004, how that may have then changed the scope of, of again, how the product has functioned since. Because we moved into a period in time shortly after there where it became kind of a presumption that if you wrestle for long enough, yeah, you should have a world title reign, um, and that in turn then fed into this philosophy that unless at some point you're a world champion, then your career's been a you know a failure, um, and you could argue that that's still informing the product this very day with Kofi's title reign this year. Um, obviously, that's that's kind of um, uh, almost in, in on the show deliberate misinterpretation, but um, you know just the 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 notion of Kofi being the one to have replaced Ali initially in that gauntlet match um, was probably on a subconscious level in part informed by Kofi's longevity as a, as a performer um, and he's done tremendous you know I should say he's I think his title reign's been been really good and I think his uh, you know the Wrestlemania match with Brian is is obviously a, an all-time classic I think but um, I get sidetracked the point that I'm saying is I think that it's a uh, by extension and I'll admit it's kind of indirectly I think this Benoit Angle match Royal Rumble uh, has a, a somewhat unsuspecting and silent legacy of its own in that it, it was perhaps the origin point for uh, a, a, a culture of uh, veteran world title reigns that has proven to be a double-edged sword. Because the truth is, you know, uh, um, that Chris Benoit's talent in the ring to separate it from what obviously happened away from it and how his, his life ended, which was diabolical, but... Uh, his talent in the ring was, uh, you know, once in a generation in a lot of ways, uh, not literally, but figuratively speaking. Uh, and you don't, you know, not everyone has it. Not everyone has the instinct or the same uh, drive or the same passion or, or bled the same um, sense of reality into their matches these days. Um, and I don't think you could get a talent of that nature anymore because of the way that wrestling itself has changed. But um, it's. I think the word that I would use to describe it is vital. It feels like a vital match for people to see. Yeah, absolutely. I I think um, when you look at Benoit's sort of uh, 2000 and 2001, you really feel like he was very close uh, mm. on a number of occasions to to being given that run earlier, um, and his obviously his neck injury interfered and almost set the process back. So by the time it finally happened, he was a lot older than you, than you might've thought. Um, but certainly when he came into the company, his first match uh, on the first night he's on TV is against triple H. who was the champion at the time. Um, so it's, you know, it's a pretty, it's a pretty big introduction that they give him and you got the impression they wanted to push him hard. Um, and it was between him and Jericho for who was going to be that next guy that, that, that broke in after, you know, you obviously got the, you know, the, uh, the four pillars in, in Foley rock, um, you know, Austin and uh, the undertaker. And then it was kind of, who's, you know, who's going to kind of, and triple H and who's going to break in uh, after that. And I think it was between those two and, for various reasons, you know, Jericho uh, got that break we discussed in our um, invasion series and became the the champ at sort of you know the end of two thousand and one. Um, and Benoit ended up waiting a little bit, but you are right to suggest that that him and Eddie winning it parallel more than anything else is probably what influenced that culture of you know veterans. Because shortly after that, you know, Edge would win it. Um, Curiously, they 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 wouldn't pull the the trigger on Christian, which is why he, he went off to TNA. Um, but yeah, there were various people after that that started to uh, started to get it. But then, of course, uh, particularly Raw became a bit of a closed shop again. You know, it became something that was passed between about three people for what seemed like forever. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, on the edge point, I feel like it's it's slightly different in the sense that um, I think he had a. Um, I mean, I wasn't really watching at the time of his push, but I think because he was out for a long time in particular, sort of in 2003, he was out for about a year. Uh, and he never, although he was climbing the ranks when he got injured, he never got to the point that Benoit had already gotten to, like you were saying, sort of 2001 when he was already challenging for world, I mean, he was challenging for world titles in 2000. Yes. Um, and so I think Edge had a had an aura about him of still being, you know, a young up-and-comer, so to speak. I think there was a sense of twilight to Benoit's world title reign in particular. Maybe not so much Eddie's, which is an interesting thought in itself that may one day be worth exploring. But, um, um, but you know, I mean, this is funny because you would think that you could, or you could be forgiven for thinking that this world title match with Angle at Royal Rumble was what put Benoit on the map. And it's almost easy to forget the fact that he'd already wrestled corkers of world title matches against The Rock, against Steve Austin, a a fantastic one on SmackDown, in particular with Steve Austin in 2001. Um, And had even wrestled for the world title on SmackDown, I think, before this point as well. Um, And Benoit would continue to be one of the top players, arguably the top babyface on SmackDown for most of the rest of the year. Um, and I remember certainly towards the back end of 2003, he seemed to be feuding with John Cena a lot because I was watching SmackDown Weekly in 2003. Um, Sky one Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. What a what a time what to a be th- alive! Yeah, what a time of day. Um, and uh, and I think so. In a, in a strange way, um, I think that this is a match that that almost overshadows a lot of what else he did i think if you were to talk to anyone who was you know willing to talk about it at least you know what's the one match in benoit's career that you know most defines him in your eyes people will say the wrestlemania 20 triple threat or people will say this one um and considering how you know prominent a figure in wrestling history benoit is sadly probably for all the wrong reasons um you know that alone is is quite a um quite a reputation for a match to have um, but also, you know, I spoke last week about chemistry, um, or in recent weeks anyway, about chemistry. Be- oh, yeah, it was last week between Brett and Sean. I was talking about how they had unrivaled chemistry in the ring. Benoit and Angle were two guys, again, who had that real unrivaled chemistry and had a real sense of legitimacy about them as well. If you're into wrestling as sport, then Angle versus Benoit is the kind of match you want to be seeking out to watch because Angle obviously had the legitimacy of being a gold medalist and and Benoit just felt legitimate because of so much of what he did in the ring felt real. Yeah, all of those things. And and I think uh, all of their matches really are um, extraordinary. And it's like, it's it's actually tough to pick a favourite, you know, because I'm a massive, a massive mark for the ultimate submission match, um, which they had uh, in 2001 on Backlash. Um, their their match the next month at uh, Judgment uh, Judgment Day is really good as well. The WrestleMania 17 match I think flies under the radar a bit because it's on the same card as TLC three and uh, TLC two two. Sorry, I always call it three because the triangle ladders is really the same thing. Um, <laughs> and uh, a, a hipster bent from you. <laughs> and, and then the uh, obviously Rock Austin match. Uh, so it it's obviously goes under the radar for those reasons, but it's a brilliant mid-card match. And even the stuff they did with Jericho, uh, the the beginning of 2000 in the triple threats and stuff, they always showed that chemistry off. Um, and they were always amazing value uh, in the ring together. And of course, their frenemies partnership is is absolutely fantastic. Like the matches they had as a tag team were phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. So yeah, they did just have that, that spark and I mean the way this match ends was always the thing I liked about it most you know with this sort of you know Angle's got the submission on it looks like Benoit's getting out of it but he grapevines the leg and he keeps going in the end Benoit's got no choice but to tap you know and those sorts of endings to matches you know that sort of drama I just feel like that's what's lacking now you know it just feels like finishes are so contrived and you've already seen so many false finishes that you're just you know you're so burnt out and this match wasn't like that I mean, one, just a, a final point before we move on. The, the other thing that I'd say is this is a match I write about in my book, Under One WWE Match to See Before You Die, weekly plug. <laughs> um, uh, 
and I stylistically I, I call it a bit of an apostate because um, it doesn't subscribe to that. Let's put it in in uh, in in inverted commas. You know, it doesn't subscribe to that WWE style. Um, because I mean, one of the wonderful things about it that I love so much, and it's a curious thing. People don't really talk about this when they talk about when people talk about. Uh, Japanese wrestling they're always talking about you know strong style and how stiff it is one of the things that I've always picked up on it as someone who's steeped more in WWE uh, one of the key differences is there's a sense of movement in Japanese wrestling that you don't get in WWE where everything every space that they operate in um, they arrive at very naturally there's no kind of leading people around or positioning people for stuff like you get a lot in wwe specifically at this period in time you know where someone would grab you know in the attitude era someone would grab someone by the hair and, and take them for a walk for a couple of seconds before getting them in place to do so there's none of that and what happens with this match is if you watch it very carefully it shifts away from that any sense of false movement and every every space that they operate in is arrived at very naturalistically just from the moves that they're doing and the offense that they're hitting on each other and the defense that they're playing um and it's 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 immensely immersive for for that fact and i think that's something that's easily missed so i just wanted to to make that note as well before we move on no indeed i think that's very well put like they just understand that that there's no point in making things look artificial and that's uh, yes. something that they should that, that most wrestlers could learn from honestly absolutely uh, so um, plan on to your, your second choice or your fourth choice officially officially yeah um, so again this is I was torn between two and originally I was leaning towards um, Randy Orton and The Undertaker at Wrestlemania 21 actually because it was uh, the first streak match that turned the streak into a thing um, but I realised that actually the one to go for is a match that many people call the greatest match of all time. I certainly don't subscribe to that opinion at all. I think I'm, I'm probably right in saying that you don't either, um, which is the undertaker and Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania 25. Uh, and I, and I sort of, I sort of include it begrudgingly. Um, first of all, it's, it's, you can't ignore the match. Like even regardless of your personal opinion on it, uh, you can't ignore the fact that a lot of people do refer to it hyperbolically as the greatest match of all time. And uh, it's got this towering legacy of its own and it was raved about when it happened. Um, and, and to this day, people are absolutely in love with it. It's it's the kind of unique wrestling match that you don't get very often that has a reputation that precedes it and a life of its own that kind of precludes critical discussion genuine critical discussion it's the kind of match that people will go out of there they'll they'll undertake all kinds of mental gymnastics to uh, kind of apologize away for its flaws um and 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 try and convince you that its flaws uh, are aren't blemishes at all but are actually strengths um but all of that is kind of moot because cons- first of all consensus reception does count for something in professional wrestling and it was universally acclaimed at the time uh, but also, I think, and we've we've kind of flirted around this this issue a lot this evening. Um, I I think it's it's very very indicative. I dare say even definitive of two things. First of all, the the way that professional wrestling has become indulgently postmodern uh, since it happened ten years ago, uh, and also the way that WrestleMania. Um, has become so drearily formulaic. Uh, and in the foremost of those two things, uh, referencing how wrestling has become indulgently postmodern, you know, this is a match that whichever way you want to boil it down, the last 15 minutes of it are all false finish. Uh, and people have kind of latched onto that. I think it was a match that heavily popularized, uh, you know, finisher kickouts to the point where they are now the norm rather than the exception. Um, and so in that sense, it has a, it has a huge influence on the way that a lot of matches, particularly the kinds of matches you see a lot in NXT operate. Uh, it's a match that I think, depending on your point of view, either elevated or, or dragged down the general discussion of wrestling matches into very kind of extreme, sometimes hysterical territory. Everything has to be the greatest of all time and that sort of thing. Um, and I also think that it's a match that, you know, it's it's a match that is 
that that demonstrates and this is going to be the controversial thing that i think i'm going to say here it demonstrates that in wwe it doesn't matter if you don't have much of a story to tell so long as you have a gimmick to sell um and that's something that translates into their pay-per-view model that started in 2009 the same year this match happened you know it doesn't matter if there's any stories for a hell in a cell match because you've got a hell in a cell to sell um so people will buy because this is a match that i think operates pretty much in that sphere yes there's the whole i'm going to end the streak thing yes they trade on the whole mr wrestlemania tries to end the streak thing but i think if you were to be brutally honest about it there's not really much narrative there um this was about and and ultimately you know you, there's listen there's a valid argument to say you don't need any more narrative in wrestling to say guy a wants to beat guy b which is essentially what this is is but we're in wwe we're in wwe in 2009 and it it's it's story in that context is is very very wafer thin uh compared to you know the kinds of great matches that the undertaker particularly would wrestle at wrestlemanias before and and less so but somewhat after um uh but what it does is it it it's it sells it on its it sells itself on its gimmick. I think personally, it's a it's a really good match. You know, I'm not saying it's not a really good match. I think it is. Uh, I don't. Th- I I personally wouldn't call it great. I think it's really good, but I think it trades off of off of a reputation that ultimately comes from the fact it's Shawn Michaels versus the Undertaker. I think it was sold on the fact it was Shawn Michaels versus the Undertaker. Um, and I think that, frankly, they operated on the fact that it was Shawn Michaels versus The Undertaker. I prefer their WrestleMania 26 one because I think the first sort of five, ten minutes of the 25 one actually are a bit directionless. It's kind of a little bit all over the place. Um, but the, the sex, so, so there's all of that. Um, you know, I think it's demonstrative of the indulgences we see these days in, in wrestling matches. And I think it's demonstrative of the way that gimmicks come before story these days. Because the gimmick here is, you know, the streak and the fact it's Shawn Michaels versus The Undertaker. But also on the second point that I made, which is how it's it's demonstrative of how WrestleMania has changed. Um, this, the whole streak thing, the, the annual fixture of the streak match, obviously started a long time before this match happened. Four years, in fact, at WrestleMania 21 with Randy Orton. Uh, and it would continue on for a long time after. But this really is the streak match that people will talk about. It's 30 minutes long. It takes up about an hour of the broadcasting time. And that would then become such a staple in, res- in the structure of WrestleManias up until, you know, 32 um, 33, in fact, um, you know, which is which is eight years later. Um, so, you know, I wonder whether that would have lasted as long as it did if this match hadn't gone down the way that it went down and achieved. Certainly, you wouldn't have got the Triple H matches. I think that that's that's pretty much wrote. And I say all of this as a fan, generally speaking, of those four street matches. You know, I'm I'm the guy who coined the term the tetralogy or LOP, sees them as one long story. Uh, and I'm conscious that I've been very, I've, I've phrased my or contextualized my pick for this very cynically. Um, and I do look at the match very cynically, but I do also think it's a very good match that probably warrants inclusion for its quality. If not, then for its, the perception of its quality, which obviously comes from somewhere. Um, but ultimately I think it, for its influence alone, for what it, for what it's indicative of with a certain kind of reading of it. And also its influence on the way people converse about wrestling today and the way we see wrestling matches in these top spots in WWE operate today. I think its inclusion there is warranted uh, as well. I think there's a lot There's a lot with this match. I think, first of all, I, I liked the idea of the match more than I liked the match. Okay. Uh, like, I actually genuinely got into the idea of Michaels as the anti-Undertaker and the... You know, him saying, oh, you know, him coming in all white and playing up the Christian thing against the dark side. And like, I actually thought that was even though they didn't they didn't build the match over that many weeks, if I recall correctly. Um, in fact, I think it was a pretty short, a pretty short build. But but I liked that idea. I loved Michael's entrance that year. And I'm not, I'm not always the biggest fan of special WrestleMania entrances, but I genuinely thought that was pretty funny and, you know, and well done. Um and I liked the fact that they did a little bit go back into the new gen and into the early Astudia and say, 
Well, you know what? He never beat him. <laughs> the Undertaker's never beaten Shawn Michaels. Um, and I, I really enjoyed that too. Um, and they'd play up a similar thing. Um, actually, they played up rather a similar thing with Edge the year before. Um, that uh, Edge was unbeaten at WrestleMania as well, and therefore, you know, blah blah blah. So I, I liked, I liked the ideas behind it. Um, also, I think you've got to set it in context of it was the it was WrestleMania 25. Everyone expected a big special show. And if I, again, if I recall correctly, although my internet presence in terms of wrestling was much lighter than yours was then, I would think, um, that people were a bit disappointed about what they'd booked. And that there wasn't, you know, it was like Orton, obviously Orton was red hot, but like it, we all know how Triple H, we round the Orton matches tend to go. Um, although I know you're a defender of that one, so. Um, well, I, quite aside from that, I think that it's worth remembering as well that the angle that they had going in was red hot. It, it was it, only kind of the, the match that people were disappointed by, I think. Yeah, it, that's 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 obviously true. But again, it's yeah. like the main events of WrestleMania was Triple H v Randy Orton. It's a bit like, oh. Um, With Triple H as the champion as well in 2009. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So so there was that. Like you had a, a Matt Hardy, Jeff Hardy thing, which was meant to be Christian. And then Vince got pissy because the internet found out and changed it to Matt and all that dead dog stuff. Uh, you know, like it was a bit blah. You know, you had the Money in the Bank ladder match again. Like what year were you into there? We talked about this earlier, like, you know, fourth, fifth year of Money in the Bank as a concept. Um, so I think in context... Michaels v. The Undertaker came became for people like the saviour of the show, even before it happened. Like, I think people wanted that, inverted commas, to steal the show, and people were predisposed to the idea of it stealing the show. And the type of match that they wrestled played into that. And they did wrestle a sort of high-octane, finisher-heavy... Uh, match which essentially took their end of the Royal Rumble scrap from 2007 and essentially turned it into a whole match and obviously people had really liked that you know the famous match within a match you know puke on the floor um <laughs> uh, my least favorite bizarrely Sheamus and Chris Jericho decided to try and replicate in 2012 <laughs> my least favourite rumble trope by some distance that one um, but yeah it's it, it's something where I think people were desperate to see them wrestle that sort of a match and you know what I don't mind them having done that in the context that it took place in it's not necessarily for me and I also am gracious enough to say that sometimes it's okay for wrestlers to wrestle a match they know that people will enjoy like i'm I'm not i'm not like authoritarian on on that point um and as you say i think it's developed a uh, an aura and a gravitas probably out of step of how good it really is and as you say it's very good and i have rewatched it several times since it happened but i can never get away from the fact that it's very much an on the night match to me oh, like totally. like, yeah, yeah. like on the night it, it it really was something you know quite special and then m- the more you re-watch it the more it is just a bog standard uh content heavy match and again what we talked about earlier on a lot of the content heavy style that we deal with you know it, it comes from that and i've gone out on a limb many times and said that i think the undertaker streak has in many ways been detrimental to wrestling and the matches from that streak that I like are the Orton match, the edge match and the punk match, which are the three cerebral ones. Uh, so I, I don't think it should be a surprise that this one isn't really in my wheelhouse particularly, but like you, you can't deny it's popular, it's popular appeal. And is, there is some, certainly something electric about Two guys who, after all, could both still go at this point. And we're not talking about, you know, WrestleMania 33 Undertaker here. We are talking about or, a guy. Or, or Saudi Arabia, Shawn Michaels. Yeah, we're talking about two guys that were still wrestling and competing at a very, very high level. So, 
you know, uh, yeah, it's it's certainly one that I think many fans would put in their official Mount Rushmore in their, oh, totally, you know, in yeah, their yeah. in their top four. Uh, and it's it's I think you're right to say it's something that you can't really avoid talking about um, because it is a WrestleMania match, which again had a far-reaching influence in terms of people wanting WrestleMania matches to be a certain thing. And as we've talked about many times on this show, uh, arguably that was very harmful to the card design of future WrestleManias. And I know it's and super cards in general, I dare say, even um, to a, to perhaps a less, slightly lesser extent, certainly um, it created a formula for streak matches. Uh, and it felt like everything the undertaker did at WrestleMania after this was trying to be this. Um, but ultimately I, I, I don't know. I just, I've always felt like Sean and the undertaker. And like you say, there's nothing wrong sometimes with wrestling, the kind of match fans are, are perhaps hungry to see, but I always felt, and I still feel like the undertaker and Sean, um, at the risk of, <laughs> at the risk of sounding pretentious, as hard as that may be to believe when it comes to, uh, <laughs> to my appearance. You're lucky Matt isn't here. <laughs> <laughs> um, I always felt like they were capable of something smarter than that match. And so it kind of, it, you know, I do balk a little bit when people refer to it as their best or the best ever, because I just don't think it's clever enough. And I, and I think that the, like you said, it's, it's content heavy. Uh, and I think the reason it's an on the night type deal is because there aren't those narrative intangibles, like the ticking clock of punk VC that we've talked about in recent weeks, for example, um, that can make a match feel special or the, you know the the morality at the heart of Austin versus Hart, uh, Austin versus Hart at Mania 13, for example. It's just not there because it was never there to begin with for them. It was just, you know, it's 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 fun, but it's a match with with, and I keep using the phrase, but I'll use it again. You know, it's a match with another towering legacy that's heavily informed wrestling today. No matter what your opinion of wrestling today may be, or no matter what your opinion of the match itself may be, and so I think it's certainly a um, you know, a, a Rushmore match, so to speak, most definitely. Yeah, there's no, there's no denying that that it's it's one which is uh, worthy of, of consideration. I just, I would urge everyone that likes that match a lot to go and watch uh, the two matches from '97. You know, to go and watch the Ground Zero match and the and the uh, Bad Blood match. Uh, and indeed, and that, this is going to be a real hit for the point, which I. I, I I doubt many people would be uh, on board with, but I actually quite like the casket match at the Rumble. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that's that's. I mean, there's that's undoubtedly a hipster point because the <laughs> casket match at the Royal Rumble is is pretty bland. It's right. not bad, but it's very very beige. I, I mean, how having said that, if you talk about important matches, Sean busts his back, taking well, a horrible right. bump off a off a casket that changes wrestling history forever. Um, all right. So um, that's, that's, uh, that's plans. Last pick. Uh, my last pick again, I, f- I found it like, uh, I found it tough to choose. I was kind of torn between doing something shieldy uh, and doing something else. And I kind of concluded that we've talked about the shield so many times on this show that everyone must be sick of it really. Um, so, Who cares? Uh, <laughs> but I actually alluded to to this match earlier on, and I have chosen the triangle ladders match from WrestleMania 16 um, for similar reasons to why you picked uh, the Money in the Bank from uh, from 21. In that, I, I think with the Attitude Era, um, obviously you had this this changing of the guard that took place when Bret Hart went to WCW and Stone Cold and Stone Cold kind of you know came in as the big, as the top guy and uh michaels had to retire you know and then you've got triple h and the rock stepping up foley stepping up the undertaker in the background providing that kind of link to the what the two past generations really um but it was like what's going to happen underneath that and i think the reason why wwf and soon after wwe managed to maintain that stranglehold uh on you know people's business is that they had those three tag teams sort of coming up. And as you said before, you know, four of the six went on to have single success of, well, ranging from edge with his God knows how many world titles, 12 or something, 13. 
14 i think yeah to to christian uh you know to jeff and then even matt who was a very successful mid carder for a a long time all, all kind of jokes aside so you had this sort of you know this uh, i guess this upper mid card echelon below and of course you, you can include jericho and banoir and various other people in that too um but they had like suddenly they had a whole card they didn't just have some real great guys at the top and some solid mid card performers like a billy gunn they suddenly had you know the sorts of cards that you get in 2000 2001 where we've talked about the absolute unbelievable quality of some of those pay-per-views and I think this is the match where that echelon of their talent really announced themselves. And you could go back as far as the No Mercy one uh, from 99, uh, or you could even go to the tables match that uh, the Dudleys and the Hardys match had, uh, Dudleys and the Hardys had at Royal Rumble in 2000. But I think this was the match where it was like, you know, on what is a not brilliant pay-per-view, really, WrestleMania 16. Uh, and this was undoubtedly the best match on the night. Uh, and one which had such a far-reaching influence. I mean, it spawns TLC because obviously all three signature weapons were there. And then as the story goes, Mick Foley, you know, invented the term by cutting a promo in the uh, lead up to SummerSlam 2000. But certainly, like, all of the ingredients of TLC are actually all present in this match. Uh, the Dudleys were fairly new with the company. Uh, the Hardys and Edge and Christian had an existing rivalry. Um, you know, they were guys that wanted to make their own names. And, you know, they made their names forever off the back of this match. And, you know, subsequently, many teams have tried to follow. Many individuals have tried to follow. I think Money in the Bank would never have been invented if this hadn't kind of given ladder matches in general a kind of revival. Um so, yeah, for, for a lot of reasons, I think it's really important. But more than anything else, of all those matches that those three tag teams had in combination with each other, I still think this is by far the best one. I agree. Um, I think, obviously, there was... I, I'm not sure if you get this match without the No Mercy tag team ladder match between Edge and Christian and the Hardy Boys at No Mercy Night. Yeah. But um, you certainly don't get TLC without this match. Because, like you say, it's it's TLC in everything but name, essentially. I mean, I'm not sure if they use any steel chairs, but it's splitting hairs, really. There's certainly tables galore and, and ladders galore, most definitely, in all the kind of big spots, and it's content-heavy. And um, But it uh, most of it makes sense, unlike later TLC matches. Uh, I think it's infinitely superior to TLC matches. Uh, I must take issue with saying it's, it's the best match on the card because I have a lot of love for WrestleMania 16's main event. Um, and I will defend that four corners McMahon in every corner match for uh, <laughs> for, the beam. <laughs> for, for for many a long year. But um, it's you know it's it's funny because people t- obviously talk about TLC two. They don't even talk about TLC one, which incidentally I think is better than TLC two. Um, and that's kind of held up as the the paragon of 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 what ladders matches would become, but. That doesn't happen without this one happening first. And there's a sense of, I mean, it's a funny old thing when you go back and watch it now, because so much of it feels tame compared to what we've seen since. Um, and it's so it's funny to hear people losing their minds, knowing what would come de- later down the line. Um, but it's another match that fits in with what's essentially become completely by accident, the theme of, of this week, which is, you know, the way that, that wrestling has changed, I think for the worst with its embrace of surplus um, and multiplicity and, and everything and more, 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 and let's have more of absolutely everything that we can possibly have diluting the value of everything. Um, and, and what's magical, I think, still about that triangle ladders match is precisely the fact that it feels oddly a little bit quaint in retrospect because it reminds you that it was a big, you know, what they were doing in that match was a big deal. You know, the, the bumps that they were taking were a big deal. Um, and and were dangerous and uh, exciting for 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 being there and it was a logical progression of the no mercy match as well because it replicated what the no mercy match did and it added another team in so there's a there's a nice logic at the at the heart of it that i think goes um, unspoken of for a long time uh, and as you say i mean defined preeminent 
young, uh, fresh headliners for the late 2000s. Edge, Christian, Jeff Hardy. Um, and of course, you know, Bubba Ray and Matt Hardy would win world titles outside of WWE later down the line as well. Um, and those, those, those reputations were forged uh, with this match before they were ever forged with, with TLC matches, which I think was when they start to get carried away. Uh, and I think Edge even says that he regrets raising the bar to where they did, um, though it's not necessarily raising the bar as just putting it in a different place, really, uh, in terms of what the Triangle Ladders match would, would kind of lay out, um, which was, you know, beyond anything else, the idea that a ladder match could go beyond the use of ladders, you know, which was an interesting... You think of ladder matches before this one. I don't think it, they ever introduced tables or other weaponry in WWE, at least. Um, so that itself was a, was an innovation. And innovation is, is the word that... I think underpins this. Um, you know, I, I guess I'd make a lot of the same points that I made earlier about money in the bank, just perhaps withdraw the, the points about, um, you know, obviously the way money in the bank has kind of become a means for pushing people. But I mean, you could argue that this match even laid out the idea that ladder matches should be showcases for young stars, which has been an interesting bent on the genre as well. Oh, absolutely. And actually you could go back as far as 98 with that because, um, well, quite. I mean, the or Rock even '94. I mean, the Rock and Triple H's match. You know, uh, that they were, you know, very young guys. I mean, especially the Rock at that point. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I do, you know, I do really think that it was uh, an incredibly influential match. I mean, I've always loved Jr.'s commentary at the end as well. Where he's like, you know, he just says, "What about these young studs?" Uh, I just, I that was the one of the best sort of Jr. like summaries. You know, just. Because the match achieved, I think everything, everything the company would have wanted it to achieve. To achieve, really, it was a um, a showcase upper mid card match, which delivered uh, in every single respect and made them a lot of money and made them a lot of stars. And you know that you, you can't really ask for more than that. There was a, a momentousness about it, uh, and that's when you know you've got something special. You know, I I remember. Uh, for example, when the Undertaker Mankind Hell in a Cell happened uh, and there was a sense of momentousness about that and I remember people talking animatedly about it at school the next morning um, who had, you know, people who'd, kids who'd stopped up and or, or had watched the, the, maybe not the next morning, maybe the Tuesday morning, but had watched the pay-per-view because they'd recorded it on Sky. Um, and I think, and, and you know, Shawn Michaels versus the Undertaker WrestleMania 25 was a was a match that had a momentousness about it. A lot of the matches we've talked about are, and this was uh, another case of it. You know, it felt special the moment that it happened. You know what my, my favourite example of that playground excitement is over a wrestling angle? What's that? When uh, Jake the Snake's Cobra bit the macho man. Oh, right. Like, honestly, <laughs> pe- people, at, people at school were absolutely just... Uh, you know, it's all anyone could talk about. Was it a real snake? Was it a real bite? <laughs> <laughs> it was just, uh, yeah, just, just, just tremendous times. Um, yeah, so uh, uh, I do, yeah, I do really feel like it's it's worthy of its its place on a kind of alternative Rushmore. I think a lot of people would, you know, would would put something like one of the two TLC matches or even one of the later ones. I mean, I think if you're talking the later ones, I actually think that the the one that involves Benoit and Jericho as a tag team is is much better than the WrestleMania 17 one, for example. Um, I mean, we both know that if you want to include a, a, a TLC match, you include the Shield versus Ryback and Team Hell now. Yeah, I mean, obviously, and that's an interesting one because, as you say, I mean, that's a an apostate TLC match because there's no belt and there's no reason to climb a ladder. <laughs> so, you know, that's kind unless of... you're Seth Rollins and you want to kill yourself. Yeah. And interestingly, interestingly enough, folks, you can hear Mav and I discuss that match in detail in a couple of weeks' time on Sports Entertainment is Dead. Yeah, very fun chat. And, um, you know, in some ways, Seth Rollins' career really peaked at escaping from Ryback when you think about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, dear. You've been replaced <laughs> by Mazza. Sorry, it just came into my head and I had to say it. Um, all right, so uh, well, that could be worse. His, his career could have peaked when he quit. Yes, <laughs> that's also true. Um, 
Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what 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 happens re uh, John Moxley on uh, AEW uh, over the next couple of weeks. Um, so let's uh, let's get out of here. Before we do that, do listen to the rest of LAP Radio's shows. You can find all the links and so on on LAP's homepage, including Plan's very own SEID, uh, soon to be airing lots of very fun half hour one oh one style conversations. Uh, unmissable stuff. Starts starts on uh, on Wednesday, of course. And with is, yourself, yeah, with first, doing uh, regular co-guest hosts, doing Triple H against your Michaels. Indeed, at SummerSlam two. Which is, of course, a, a fantastic match. Um. So, uh, from the right side of the pond, until next week, we will leave you. Bye.